Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning, and, and Lord, Lord, thank you for the wonder of your creation, the glory of it, how it shouts out praises to you. The things you have made, and their words are going out to every nation, every language. Everybody sees your handiwork. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified this morning as we contemplate creation, the creation of man as man and woman. Lord, bless us. This is a subject that's so vastly misunderstood. And so we just, we just pray for wisdom. And we pray that we would see the beauty of it as well. Bless our time. And, and Lord, bless this Sunday. Lord, thank you that this is the Lord's day. So not only is it the day that you have made, we will be glad and rejoice in it, but it's that one day a week, that first day of the week that we gather together to worship as brothers and sisters connected through the blood of Christ, made co-heirs with Jesus with a glorious inheritance. Lord, thank you. I just pray that these things would, would be rich in our minds this morning. So bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. As you know, we're going through systematic theology, and we're on chapter 22 in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. And we've been kind of doing some detours. We've been looking at soul care along the way, as, as well as some other things. And we're going we're gonna to kind of slow down at this point, because we're getting into some issues, some, some modern issues that are of huge concern and, and so we, we just want to slow down. Now, when you think of hot buttons, cultural hot buttons today, what, what are they? Gender dysphoria. Okay, so they center in large part around gender. Anything else? Authority. Yeah. So it may be a, a willingness to submit, a willingness to view authority right and wield it correctly and, and, and to respond to it rightly. What else? What's that? Drugs, yeah. Destruction of the human body, a, a kind of a, a vain attempt at finding eternity through substances. Um, probably life, would you say? Life is a huge thing, both beginning of life and end of life. Um, so there's, there's so many things. Self-autonomy, and that gets back to authority. Um, abortion, euthanasia, gender, male and female. And, and we, would be, we would be wrong to assume that these are just things that go on out there in, the, in our culture, but they influence the church and they affect us as Christians as well. We're more influenced by our culture than we realize. And, and so uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that we as human beings were created by God in the image of God and for the purpose of glorifying God. Last week, uh, Brett looked at um, the human body, the theology of the human body. And, and this week, we're going we're gonna to look at these two questions. Why did God create two sexes? And can men and women be equal and yet have different roles? So God did create two sexes. Why? And, and, and we can be, we are equal, but we have different roles. Is that even possible? And that's what we're going to look at today. And so this section, 
we're, we're going to kind of slow down right now to talk about gender and some, some things like that. And so the next couple of weeks, we won't just be going chapter 22, chapter 23, chapter 24. We'll, we'll be kind of taking some time looking at some of these current issues. So Blaise Pascal said this, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. What do you think about that? Interact with that. People almost invariable. Is that too strong? They almost invariably arrive at their belief, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Yeah. Correct. And so we, we have a tendency to just go along with the people around us. But what is it that drives us to a different understanding? Is it just we need more proof? What, what do we... Yeah. 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 Sometimes what can also drive you is when you grow up with something and you realize that something's horribly wrong, or you've experienced the culture, you've gone down the garden path, and you realize that it's empty, and there needs to be something better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that at times we might have arguments and we might have certain beliefs, but if we don't see them as beautiful, then they're on sh a shaky foundation and they'll crumble at the, first, at the first onslaught. And so, you know, for example, on this area of men and women and roles and value, etc., we can, we can there's, a, there's a continuum or a spectrum. On one side, there's just an outright rejection. Nope, don't believe it refuse to see that as, as valuable at all. And we see that among those outside the church especially. But, but there's, there's other parts of that spectrum. Another part of that spectrum would be, yeah, well, I see the Bible teaches it, and, um, but I don't really like it. But it's true. And so, you know, and, and that's where a lot of people fit within the church even, that, hey, it's true, the Bible has some pretty hardcore things to say, about roles and distinction of roles and men and women and how we relate. And um, I, so I'm just going to believe it because it's in the Bible, but I don't necessarily see it as a good thing. But then the other side of the spectrum, and you know, nobody falls into, each, into one camp perfectly, but on the other side of the spectrum is, my goodness, this is something that God has done, and therefore it's beautiful. Not just beautiful for one particular person who gets to do this, but it's beautiful for everybody. It fits, and it's right for both men and women. Does that, does that make sense? And that's what Pascal is getting at, is, is that what we're really going to cling to is what we find beautiful, not just what our minds are convinced of. And so this subject is, is one of those subjects that is beautiful, and we need to see it that way. So we're created in the image of God. Do men and women, do men or women better represent that image? Yes. Yes. 
neither one together, better together, right? And there's something so beautiful about the way God has done it. In Genesis 1.27, it says, so God created man in his own image. That's the name he uses, man. In the image of God, he created him. Well, now let's break that down. Male and female, he created them. So there's something about the image of God that is displayed through a, a demonstration of manhood and womanhood. And, and that really gives us a picture of what God is like. Genesis 5 repeats this. And this is Genesis 1 before the fall, Genesis 5 after the fall. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. Wayne Grudem said this, Although the creation of man as male and female is not the only way in which we are the image of God, it is a, it is a significant enough aspect of our creation in the image of God that scripture mentions it in the very same verse in which it describes God's initial creation of man. So we go through creation, and God made this, and then God made this, and then when it gets to man, God made man, and then immediately he says, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, right at the onset. So creation of man as male and female shows God's image. All right, let's just, let's just say that's, it shows God's image. So it shows God's image in three ways. Way number one, harmonious interpersonal relationships. So just the relationships, that shows God's image. Number two, equality in personhood and importance. And then number three, difference in role and authority. So interpersonal relationship, equality, and difference. Those are kind of the three big areas, and that's, that's kind of what we'll go through. So first, harmonious interpersonal relationships. Genesis 1.26, and you see this throughout Genesis chapter 1, this plural language. And in Genesis 20.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. As we look throughout scripture, we see this plural language about who God is. So who is God? God is a Trinitarian God. And God exists in perfect fellowship, perfect joy. He calls us to make him number one. So, so he calls us to glorify him. That's our purpose in life, to glorify God. But what does God do? God doesn't just stand there in a mirror and say, I'm so wonderful in, in one sense. God, in his plurality, says, look at the son. And the son says, look at... Look at the Father. I obey him in everything. He's beautiful. And then the Holy Spirit is part of that dance. It's called a, a dance of joy. And, and the Holy Spirit delights and basks in shining the spotlight on Jesus. And there's this self-giving. And that's how God glorifies himself. It's the opposite of self-centeredness. Self-centeredness says everything should orbit around me. That's, that's really at every one of our hearts. Everything orbits around me. That's kind of the cry that each one of us wants. All conflict re comes from that attitude. You should be about me. But in the life of Trinity, it's characterized, and this is what one theologian said, I can't remember if it was Wayne Grudem or, or someone else, the life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, 
but by mutually self-giving love. The life of the Trinity, or when we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of others. But you see that God within the very Godhead does this with himself. He delights in the Son. The Son delights in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit delights in the Father. And, and there's this incredible mutual interpersonal relationship that is harmonious. Any thoughts? Okay, it would, be, it would be fitting for that to somehow enter into our relationships. If we're going to be image bearers of this triune God, then we would expect our relationships to reflect something of this interpersonal harmony. And, and that's exactly what we have. God made Adam and Eve in such a way that they would share love and communication and mutual giving of honor to one another in their interpersonal relationship and mission. Now, of course, that this reflection of the Trinity is not only, it does not only show up in marriage, but that is a, one of the primary ways where it shows up. But it shows up, if you're single, you can reflect the glory of God. And, and so it shows up in a lot of different ways, but there is something really unique about how God puts this on display in marriage. Now, marriage is not the only way in which unity and diversity in the Trinity can be reflected. It can be reflected in the church, and it is reflected in the church, etc. But here's a dilemma that, often, that we often face. How do we think highly about marriage without excluding singles or making them feel like second-class citizens? Because again, there is something about marriage that puts this, inner, this Trinitarian mutual self-giving love on display. But, but at the same time, we don't want to minimize singles. But our temptation is to minimize marriage in order to maximize singles. We don't want to do that. But at the same time, we want to... We wanna... Do you know what I'm trying to say? Any, any comments there? Yeah, Brian. Yeah. Whereas being male and female is it's it's baked in. Like the Bible says that that's part of where we're wired and yeah. will redeem, it will last forever. So that's interesting to me. Marriage is not forever because in the, in, in yeah. life we yeah. don't have that. But female female. So there's something essential in how we uh as a church relate to each other as brothers and sisters, how we can learn from each other, encourage one another, all the one another's so yeah. Yeah. And, and really, marriage does last forever, but it's the wrong marriage. The marriage between the, the bride, which is the church, and Christ himself. And so, in a sense, everybody will be part of that. And that's the ultimate expression of what we're talking about. And yeah.
And so I think that's the same with, with singles and, and non-singles, or singles and married, when we can, uh, in balance, uh, emphasize the role that singles can play in the church family. Yeah, yeah. Amen. The church family is the place where, yeah, this is shown. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so I think about, you know, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? So is that possible to do as a single? And the answer is absolutely yes. Mm-hmm. Is possible to do that as a married couple? Absolutely yes. So you can come to the same end. That path might be different in how you go about doing that, but it's the same. Yeah, the chief end of man is to glorify him enjoy him and glorify him forever and and we are called to do that as singles and as married people and it's gonna it's gonna look different in our lives in places but um amen so marriage is really the fullest expression of this interpersonal unity in this life now there are expressions where you know in in many many places but this is the fullest expression. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a profound unity of two people becoming one. And, and that shows up in marriage. It's a physical unity, a spiritual unity, an emotional unity, a unity of purpose. Uh, Matthew 19.6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And husbands... Husbands are called to love and cherish and honor their wives as their own bodies. Ephesians 5, 25, 28, and 30 talks about the husband. He is called to love and to cherish his wife. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Proverbs 31, 28 to 30, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You see, in in scripture, husbands are called to honor their wives. And, And not just husbands, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And so you see this this valuing, this treasuring taking place within a marriage. How how well do we display that? God help us. God help us. Because the very glory of God is at stake. We We are representing that glory. And husbands are called to honor and praise their wives. And, and again, that's a picture of what takes place in the Trinity. Again, God delighting in his Son. The Son obeying the Father in everything, joyfully delighting in who he is. In the, in the, again, the Holy Spirit is part of this dance. So now there are two objections. One objection. Marriage is not intended to reflect the plurality within the Trinity. There's only two, not three. So, so one objection would be, wait a minute, what, what are you talking about? There's only two people in a marriage. How can this reflect something that is Trinitarian? Any thoughts about that? Yeah. That, uh, you know, as we become one with the Lord, there is three. You know, uh, 
the Holy Spirit, the husband, the wife. Yeah. Okay, any, what else? Anything else? Yeah. You still have that that oneness. Yeah. The relationship between the Trinity isn't what it is just because there's three versus two versus four. God is three persons in one. The argument saying it's not three, it's not interpersonal. You still get a you get the the scent of it. The essence is not it because it's three. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and I, think, I think this is, this is how Grudem puts it, that it's not an exact analogy, number one, and it probably shouldn't be. We're human. He's God. What, what, our, what our demonstration of what God is like should be and probably is going to be inferior to what God is really like. And so, but it is, a, it is a glimpse of it, even though it's not exact in the full representation of it. And then others would say, yeah, but you also, you have a family, and you have a husband, and you have a wife, and, and if God allows, you have children, and, and there's something of it there within the family, even beyond the husband and the wife relationship. Equality, all human beings, but there is an authority structure, and, and there can be a, a, a real beautiful unity there. So that's, that's one objection, and, um, but it's, it's not surmountable. Objection number two, if marriage was that significant, why was Jesus and the Apostle Paul unmarried? Or why were Jesus and the Apostle Paul unmarried? And just for the sake of time, I'll just move on. For one, Jesus is both God and man. He is the sovereign Lord of creation. And he does not have one bride. He has the whole church. So Jesus, in a sense, can you imagine if Jesus did have a bride? That would, you know, how would you work past that? Jesus loves us all as his bride. And, and so there's, there's, no, there's no argument there. There's other reasons why it's important for Jesus to be single, but that's not a stoppable thing. But also, um, Paul, Paul thought that marriage was good, and he wrote about marriage, and he said it's good, but... He also saw it as a privilege that could be given up for the sake of the kingdom. And so it's not that Paul was saying marriage isn't good, and it's not that Paul's saying I can better reflect the glory of God as a single person, but he was saying, man, I can work to the glory of God. I can be involved in his kingdom. I can do ministry in a unique way if I'm single. And, and so he gave that up. But, um, but it's certainly not an argument against how marriage demonstrates the image of God. So there's this harmonious interpersonal relationship. Now, would you agree with me that in marriage there is a joy and pleasure and harmony when it's at its best? <laughs> that doesn't compare with any other human relationship. That is a fact. But also, would you also agree that the biggest disappointments and heartaches 
that you could ever experience in life also can come because of the closeness of that relationship. We live in a fallen world, and um, we, we, we fall short, but there's something so unique about that personal relationship that, that gives it the highest mountain ranges and the lowest value, valleys. But marriage reflects the glory of God in this harmonious interpersonal relationship. Number two, equality in person in importance. And by the way, we're going to spend more weeks on marriage. And so we're just scratching the surface here. So equality in personhood and importance. If equally in God's image, then equally important and equally valuable. Right? And so the Bible's really clear about that. Men and women in God's image... And so equal, equal in value, equal in importance, equally God's image. No one should feel proud or superior because he is a man or a woman. And no one should feel disappointed or inferior because he is a man or is a woman. And also no one, consequently, should want to change their sex. And so do you see how so many of the problems we're facing in our culture are established and dealt with and handled in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Any, any thoughts there? Just to reiterate what Jim said earlier, I just see some of this transgender stuff is the desire to be my own God, and so I'm, go I'm going to get to choose the Genesis 3, yep. It's a, it comes back to authority, doesn't it? And who is going to be God? And God has told us, men and women, equal in importance and value. And, and so we just, we just embrace that. Now, our culture, worldwide, has not embraced this. And we see that in abortion. And, and Gruda pointed out an article that was written in 1994, but it's as relevant today as it was then. And the article was titled, No Girls Allowed, Abortion for Sex Selection Raises Moral Questions. That's in the USA Today, back in 94. And, and what this article went on to say is that through abortion and, you know, worldwide, and through this, there's a strong cultural desire for boys over girls. And as a result, that's left us at that time, with 100 million missing females. 100 million missing because of abortion, infanticide, neglect, um, worldwide. And, and that, was, that was 30 years ago. Today, that number is closer to, or at least it's over 140 million. So over, well over a million girls are being deleted each year. And, and that number may even be growing. Um, and so in, in some areas, they've seen as much as 25% male births, more male births than female births. And, and this has ravaging effects on not just population, but on um, so many different things. So this sex selection is alarming, but what is that at the heart of it? What does it reveal? 140 missing, 
140 million missing women. What does that reveal about our culture in the world? What is the attitude toward women? You see, that's not just... Not as valuable. It's being... It's, and, and it's not just that those 140 million women that are not present today. But what about the ones who remain? What does that say? There is an attitude out there that you are not valuable. You do not matter as much as men. And it's, it's everywhere you look. The whole world dehumanizes women. But not the Bible. 1 Corinthians 11 says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man. Right? She came from man. God took a rib, made the woman. But then it says, nor man of woman. For a woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman. All things are from God. There is such incredible dignity and even honor given to women in the Bible. And it's a wonder that our secular world that has that view of women, 140 missing, would turn to the church and say, oh, God, is, you know, that, that Bible is demeaning toward women. It's absurd. It's, it's satanic. Galatians 3, 27 to 28 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Where else do you hear language like this? Nowhere. God has such an extremely high view of women, and he said, handle them with care, men. There are no second-class citizens in the church. Now, some of us in the church, and there's a liberal faction that would say, therefore, roles the same. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says extreme value, honor. But there's a distinction. I'm going to tell you how I want you to function in the church and in the marriage. And, and, but, but when we think about gifting, too, Joel 2, this was prophesying when, when Jesus would come and the Spirit would be unleashed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I shall pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. This, this, this type of language is unheard of anywhere outside the church. That God himself would pour out his Spirit on both men and women. 1 Corinthians 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. 1 Peter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's glorious grace. Now, in, in our culture and in our mindset, we say, my gift, my right. The Lord's given me a gift. I'll use it how I think I should. And, and that's not right. God has given us instructions for how we are to relate, right? So God loves. We're equal. We're valuable. We demonstrate what God is like as men and women. God gives us gifts. God pours out his spirit. And then God says, okay, now here's 
here's how I want you to function, and here's how this is going to look, and it's going to be beautiful. And again, this happened before the fall. So now we get to differences in roles. There is a plurality of persons within the Trinity. The Trinity, in the Trinity, God exists as one God and three persons, and each person is fully God, right? But when we look at how God operates throughout Scripture and in the world, we see distinct differences. So in creation, the Father plans and initiates and speaks. But the Son is the very word of God that proceeds from God's mouth. God doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. But that word that he issues forth is Jesus. Somehow. And, and he carries out the Father's plan. And the Holy Spirit operates and sustains all that comes about. So we see it right out of the gate in creation, this Trinitarian work with distinct roles. In redemption, the Father sends the Son into the world, and the Son comes and is obedient to the Father and dies to pay for our sins. After the Son has ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes to equip and empower the church. The Father did not come to die for our sins, nor did the Holy Spirit. The Father was not poured out on the church at Pentecost in the new covenant power, nor was the Son. Each member of the Trinity has distinct roles and functions. Again, equal importance, personhood, and deity. Different functions. And nobody's complaining. And, and that's, that's Grudem. But then we look at, what does the Father do? The Father glorifies the Son. In Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized, and he comes up, and, and it says, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, and a voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God is not reluctantly doing this. He, he had, under compulsion to just delight in the Son. This is my Son. I'm pleased in him. You can just see the delight and the pleasure that God has toward the Son. In Matthew 17, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's going, well, man, we should make, tab we should make all tabernacles for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Shuts down immediately, and Jesus is left. And, and God says, behold, my servant whom I have chosen. Oh, I'm sorry, that's, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's almost as if the father trips over himself to exalt in the son. So pleased with the son. And the Old Testament prophesied this. The prophet Isaiah said, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. So the father's disposition toward the son is planning, go do, he directs. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. The father dictates, the father um, establishes how things are going to be, and the son joyfully Submits. John 6.38 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And then John 5, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing, and greater works than these he will show him. So we have this. I, I remember, and I've talked to Jehovah's Witnesses before, and I remember 
you know, one time sitting down with Jehovah's Witnesses and, and, and sharing about the e- equality of Jesus. And, and it was almost like, ugh, I didn't quite want to say that the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Because that almost, in my mind, affected by culture, robs from the fact that he's equal to the father. Because we're so inclined to think that authority is here, submission is here. It's just, it's in our blood. And I've talked to people and almost wanted to kind of pass over that. That's for another time. We're talking about equality here. But Jesus, right after he says, making himself equal with God, so Jesus said to them, I can do nothing of my own accord. There's something so embedded in the very personality and personhood of God that demands authority and submission. What is God like? He is a God that has authority, but he's a God that perfectly displays rightful submission. That's, that's not a lesser thing. And, and God help us to grasp, grasp this. But then you go down to Philippians 2 and you say, oh, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. He was equal with God, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. I'm kind of highlighting through. And then at the end it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so then we say, aha, there it is. Yes, he had to submit, but it was only for a time. And eventually God exalts him. And now we see equality in the full orbit. But then in in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be also be subjected to him who put all things in, subjected, in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There's a mouthful. But you see that God puts all things under Jesus, exalts him, and then in 1 Corinthians 15, we see at the very end, it's not like, okay, now we're back to equilibrium. But at the very end, we see Jesus gladly saying, okay, that's happened. Now, whoosh, right back under God. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? It goes against our sense of... I, I can't quite put it into words. But um, what, do you, what do you think? Comments? Power matters. And so, you know, when we're talking about worth and value, it's all bound up in, well, I have worth and value if I have power. If I don't have power... If I'm calling the shots. That's the lie. It is a lie. It's, a, it's, it's such a lie. Calling the shots is not any more godlike than submitting gladly to the shots that are called. Both demonstrate the beauty of God. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah. Yes. And and we could say, yeah, well, that's great. That's God's character, and that's what Jesus was dealing with. But I'm in a different situation. But we know that that all things work together for good, and God has called us to be submissive. Every one of us, right? There's a there's a requirement for submission because that so glorifies what God is like. The Holy Spirit's role in to bring about the glory of another. The Holy Spirit is all about glorifying. In John 14, he says the Jesus said the helper whom the Holy the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Do you mean that the Holy Spirit is here now and all he's doing is pointing and reminding us what Jesus said? Is that a godlike function? You bet. He's demonstrating what God is like. Do you know in John 15, when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit just bearing witness about Jesus, like a spotlight shining on the glory of, of Jesus and what he's done. Bruce Ware said this, though the Holy Spirit is God, equal in essence to the Father and the Son, yet his role is consistently to defer honor, to seek to bring about the glory of another. 24-7, forever and ever. He's all about the glory of God. That's one-third of the Trinity. Glorifying, spotlighting another. If human beings reflect the character of God, then we would expect there to be different roles in our, in our own experiences, not just in marriage, but in the church. And, 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 and let's be careful not to, to say, and, I, and I've, I've said this, I've been like, yes, yes, the, the Bible does teach this about this role distinction, but it's only in marriage and the church. And, and it, almost as if just these two areas that we have to put up with this. But it's a beautiful thing, and it really goes to the heart of who we are as men and women as well. Now, don't, I'm not saying that brothers should show leadership to their sisters and sisters should submit to their brothers. No, that's not what the Bible says. It talks about wives submitting to their husbands. I'm not saying that it's impossible for a woman to rise to the level of CEO of a company. No, there is a distinction within the church and within the marriage. But, um, but even, even in a church, we're called to submit to elders. And, and by the way, I'm an elder too. I'm called to submit to the elders just as much as anybody else here. And, and, but I can do that, and we can do that without even thinking about value or, or personhood or, or any of that. Now, the, the subject of male authority within the church and in the home is such a difficult topic. Why do you think that is? And we only have a moment. I've got to keep moving. But why do you think that is? I think there's, there's 
Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Again, we're not talking about value or inferiority or gifting even, um, or, or intelligence, none of that. So now, we'll talk about, we're, we're going to we'll spend more time talking about submission and, and what that looks like and the application of that for all of us, because it, it affects every area of life. To be a good employee, you submit to your boss. When you see that as something that God is like, it makes it a whole lot easier, right? Wives, children, so on and so forth. Um, but imagine if you have a, a husband who is a tyrant, and then you have a wife who is a usurper. What's that marriage going to look like? It's, it's going to be tough. But now, now, what if you have a husband who is a tyrant and a wife who is a doormat? It's going to be abusive. It's going to be horrible. What if you have a husband who is a, a wimp, and a wife who is a usurper. It's not good. But what if you have a husband who is a wimp and a wife who is a wimp? Yeah. But, I mean, there are examples of all of these. And so there is a loving, joyful, deferring leadership not just a, well, we've only had to, I've only had to break the tie, you know, twice in the last 20 years. That's oftentimes how we think about it. Yeah, it's a mutual thing, and then every once in a while, but don't worry, it's not that often. The husband has to exert his God-given authority to make the final decision. That's not what it looks like. But there is a joyful cooperation where the husband is, is not is not abdicating, but is stepping forward and is planning and is thinking. Man, it's the opposite of what we want to do as husbands. So many of us, we just want to be lazy. But no, there's an active engagement that is involved in every decision. And, and yet, wives, you're bringing your gifts and your wisdom to bear, and a husband's crazy if he doesn't listen to that. And um, so on and so forth. Many of us have wives that are wiser than us. And so all the more we have to listen. And so, so marriage, there's just something so unique about this. Now, when were these roles established? I'm just going to whip through this, and then we'll move on. Um, some people would say, Genesis 3.16, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Um, Gilbert... I can't even pronounce his last name, said, because it resulted from the fall, the rule of Adam over Eve is viewed as satanic in origin, no less than death itself. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, at the fall, it's stated that I'm going to multiply your pain in childbearing, 
And, it, and, and also, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There it is. That's the introduction of these roles in Genesis 3, which, which is not the case at all. But do you see what he's saying? If, it re, if, if this was initiated after the fall, then it, the problem, the reason we have this authority structure is because of sin. And, um, and there are many reasons why that's not the case. And I'm just going to list through, and I'm going to really talk about them. Adam was created first. That is not incidental. That is significant. Number two, Eve was created as a helper for Adam, not incidental. And that's very clear before the fall. Next, Adam named Eve, the giving of names. Again, a significant thing, not incidental. He called, before the fall, he called her woman. After the fall, he named her Eve. And so it was, the naming occurred before and after. God named the human race man and not human. The serpent came to Eve first, not because women are more gullible. If, if anything, men are more gullible because the man just sat there, she gave it to him, and he ate it. I, I wonder how long it took the Eve to get her to, to sin. And so it, it's... It's, it's, it has nothing to do with abilities or gullibility. It has to do with the order. Satan saw the order, and he usurped it. So what did he do? He went after Eve, not Adam, because that's exact opposite of what God did. God went to Adam. Um, God, when God came after the fall, before the fall, he spoke to Adam first. After the fall, he spoke to Adam, and it was basically, you're responsible. And um, Adam, not Eve, represented the human race. The curse that brought a distortion of previous roles, or I'm sorry, the curse did not introduce new roles. Now that there's sin, you've got to submit to your husband and you've got to lead and you're going to do bad. But it brought a distortion of what was previously wonderful and what was previously good. And, and we see that. Adam, you're going to provide for the family. Now you're going to have thorns. It's going to be really hard. Eve, we're not switching childbirth. It was Adam before, but now because of the fall, it's going to be you, Eve, giving birth. It's, it was painless before, but now it's going to be painful. Before Adam, you led joyfully and lovingly. And Eve, it was your joy to follow. Now you're not going to want to follow, and he's going to be a tyrant, or he's going to be... Uh, uncaring. He's going to be harsh. Um, this, this desire to conquer is a, is a desire to rule. And it, it involves being uncaring, harsh, use authority. So again, Gilbert says, because it resulted from the fall, the rule of Adam over Eve is viewed as satanic in origin. That statement is satan satanic. But that's what has happened even within the church. And, and when, we, when we think about egalitarianism, well, we agree on everything. We agree on Jesus and the cross. And, and, but once you disrupt the very foundation of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, once you disrupt that, you're calling into question the very um, inerrancy of Scripture itself. And all else will eventually go. Every doctrine you don't like will eventually go if you attack this core thing. That's why egalitarianism, which means men and women can both be pastors, can both be elders, et cetera, et cetera, 
it's, it's not just, it's not an incidental thing. It's a, it's a really big deal because the Bible is so clear on this subject. Again, it's a beautiful thing. We haven't been able to highlight that as much. Also, redemption in Christ. When Christ came, we, we, we would expect if Gilbert was right, when Christ came, he would say, hey, by the way, you've been doing all this stuff because of the fall, and now I'm going to reverse it. But he doesn't do that. When, when we get into the new... Now, I'm sorry, I just realized I'm raising my voice. And wives, what does Jesus say? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Jesus is calling us back to the way it was from the very beginning. And he's restoring the very order that's, that was there that the fall didn't introduce, but the fall distorted. Is that, does that make sense? And so, and I know I'm preaching to the choir. Um, if this were sinful, this is what Grudem says, if this were sinful because of the fall, the New Testament would not have commanded it to be maintained. That would be like saying, encourage thorns to grow in your garden, or make childbirth as painful as possible. It's God's beautiful and wonderful plan. And we see that in Jesus. Jesus submitting to his parents. In all of these words for submission, demons to Jesus, citizens to government, the universe to Christ, on and on and on, it's not a mutual submission. There is an authority piece there. And so it's, it's very clear. So, submitting to one another in Ephesians 5, it says submitting to one another out, out of reverence for Christ. Then it, then it talks about husbands and wives and wives submitting to their husbands. But then it goes on and, and it, it talks about marriage, children in chapter 6, and servants submitting in chapter 6. And the, the point being there is, what does this submission look like? Submitting to one another. Well, in marriage, it looks this way. For children, it looks this way. And then for servants, it looks this way. It's not just, hey, this usurps everything else that's going to be said. Oh, we gotta, we gotta, we got to stop. But um, back to Blaise Pascal. People almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. God help us to see this, not just, oh, it's in the Bible, I've got to believe it, but to see that this distinction in roles is something that is absolutely beautiful and life-giving for both men and women. And um, we got four minutes for prayer. Yeah, Jim. Amen. Same with elders in the church. The Bible calls for there to be leadership and submission, but you see the spirit that God has through it is, these are my sheep. I'm going to hold you accountable for them. 
And in fact, there's going to be stricter judgment on you elders for how you take care of the sheep. So you see God's attitude. Authority will be held accountable in marriage and the church. And so let's pray. And can we pray that we would demonstrate this well at GCF? Because again, this is something that profoundly impacts our influence in the world. They see this. This is a demonstration, especially in marriage, it's a picture of Christ and the church. Do we not want the world to see Christ and the church? Our marriages is kind of the very front line of showing the world what, what Christ is like. And so let's pray. Please. Matt, would you open us up?